Welcome to Forever Leads. Hello and welcome back to Forever Leads, the final time this autumn term. This is the only podcast for anyone who's been a student at Leeds or wants to be. All brought to you by the University of Leeds Advancement Team. I'm Rich Williams and I'm joined by podcasting superstar Georgia Lay. And by the way, I know not just podcasting superstar this week, because I saw all over your socials, LSTV presenting superstar as well. What was going on? It was a big live show. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, We collaborated with Leeds Student Radio as well and did a live show all around the University of Leeds campus. So it was kind of with Campus Live as well, which has been happening this term. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was for charity. I presented with my friend Billy and we did some challenges to try and get some money donated. Uh, Give us an example of a, a challenge. Uh, we did the Chubby Bunny Challenge, so trying to fit as many marshmallows in your mouth as you can. How many? Twelve. Good going. Thank you, thank you very much. Yep, tried my best. So, no, it was lots of fun. Kind of humiliated myself a bit, but I feel like you can't complain when it's for charity. So what is on our final episode of Forever Leads for 2022? We speak to business-savvy founder of IMDB, Cold Needham, about how he created the world's largest entertainment website. Then we've got plant whispering academic Tom Bennett to tell us how plants can send signals to each other. And conservation hero Rebecca Klein joins us to discuss her fantastic work in cheetah conservation. Plus, we'll delve into the Michael Sadler building here on campus to explore Yorkshire's ancient history. Well, it's certainly going to be a packed edition. And remember, Forever Leeds is out every month during term time. So if you want to keep up to date with the latest in all things alumni, make sure you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can tweet us as well. We are at Leeds Alumni. We'd love to hear about the time you spent at Leeds and what you think about the podcast. Now, have you ever watched a film and wondered who the lead actor is or how much money it made? Well, back in 1990, when the internet was just learning to walk, our first alum, Col Needham, had you in mind. From starting out in the University of Leeds' computer science department to working 18-hour days, seven days a week, to get his visionary movie database, IMDB, off the ground, he's had a truly inspirational journey. So how did he go from watching Top Gun in the Cannon Theatre in Leeds to attending the Top Gun Maverick premiere in Cannes with none other than Tom Cruise? Let's find out. My name's Cole Needham. I studied computer science at Leeds. I graduated in 1988 and I'm currently the founder and CEO of IMDb. I'm a lifelong film fan. Uh, All my earliest memories are in cinemas, and as a child, I had a second interest, which was technology. The two of those things kind of came together in the early 80s, when I found myself seeing so many films, I was losing track of which ones I'd seen and which ones I hadn't seen. Uh, So I did the classic film geek thing, which is to get a paper diary and start to write down what you saw on what day. But I'm interested in who wrote the film, who directed the film, who was in it. And so I soon switched from a paper diary to a database to track what I had seen. So I would rewind the VHS tapes, uh, press pause, type the credits in, um, ridiculously geeky. Uh, but it turned out all right in the end. 
I got online in the summer of 85, way pre-web, before there were any websites around or or anything like that. And I met online like-minded film fans. And one thing led to another, and we ended up pooling some of the information that I'd collected, that some other people had collected, and I wrote the software that basically was the IMDb software. And in the summer of 93, we launched our first ever website. Um, We were one of the first 100 or so websites to launch. It was all volunteer, and we'd grown so huge by 95 that it was difficult to do as a hobby anymore. Uh, We bought our first web server on a credit card, Uh, Two weeks later, I sold our first piece of advertising. Uh, That enabled us to pay off the credit card before the four-week interest-free credit was over. And we thus became the world's first profitable internet company. By the summer of 96, revenue was enough that I could quit my day job. And then from that point onwards, as the revenue grew, I would call up one of our volunteer shareholders and say, hey, we can afford to hire you now. Quit your day job. Come join the team. December 1997, I got an email, an email from a guy called Alan Kaplan. And Alan's job title was General Counsel Amazon.com. And Alan's email went pretty much like this. Hi, Col. Um, Jeff Bezos and I were discussing movie websites. We're going to be in the UK in January and would love to meet to discuss some business ideas. So contextually, Amazon had only been a publicly traded company for seven months. They only sold books and they never acquired another company before. So we thought we were going along to discuss an advertising deal. Uh, met with Jeff, met with Alan. Jeff had such a clear picture of how IMDb and Amazon could work together and IMDb would be a separate brand. And so we found ourselves kind of going, this sounds like a good thing to do. And a little trip to Seattle, little bit of negotiation. And on the 24th of April, 98, we became uh, Amazon's first ever acquisition. And they obviously, they hired everyone, including myself, who was already working for IMDb. Um, And then anybody who was still a volunteer shareholder waiting for my phone call was also hired um, as well. And we've been part of Amazon for nearly 25 years. Every day is still an adventure. (laughs) My Leeds film moment is very apt for this year. So um, my wife and I met at Sixth Form College. I came to Leeds. Um, she was at, she was at teacher training college in in Ormskirk in Lancashire, um, and we saw each other every weekend. Uh, so this one particular weekend, uh, October nineteen eighty six. And I was a big fan of uh, a band at the time uh, called Berlin. And they had contributed a song to this new movie called Top Gun, starring this young 23-year-old Tom Cruise. So we, we went along to the Canon in Leeds. I'm not sure if it's still there. It, it probably, it certainly won't be branded Canon, but it was the Canon Cinema uh, in Leeds. And they had uh, what was called at the time 
Pullman seating. Now, this is what you would now call premium seating. So we, we paid, you know, poor students as well, poor students. Uh, and, and we got in and the Pullman seating was a, a, a row of armchairs. We were the only two people sitting in these armchairs. And, and of course, you know, we should have seen this coming. The lights go down and immediately all of the other students in the, in the cinema like piled into the you know the vacant armchairs there and we we had a wonderful time seeing top gun but the funny thing about top gun is this so we're very fortunate we are able to go to the Cannes film festival and this year it was the world premiere of top gun maverick and my my contacts at the festival i told them the story of like seeing the original top gun some like 38 years <laughs> 38 years earlier with my then girlfriend now wife <laughs> in leeds and and so so we arrived and you know everybody knew that tom cruise was obviously going to be there uh but when he arrived the the french equivalent of the red arrows did a flyover tom comes into the cinema we're basically seated three rows in front of Tom Cruise at the world premiere. And then Karen and I, like, sit there. And, you know, I, I said to her afterwards, wow, who would ever have thought that the computer scientist and teacher trainee, 19 years old at the time... <laughs> In another in another thirty eight years, would be at the world premiere of the sequel to this film, with Tom Cruise, with Jennifer Connelly, with Miles Teller, uh, with Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, you know, with the whole kind of like team from the from the film kind of thing. So um, yeah, so that's my leads to Cannes story. <laughs> My essential thing is that the world would be a much better place if people watched more films. But we're being more explicit about that these days, and that is helping people discover what to watch next. I'm a big film fan. Um, I believe in the power of film to uh, not only to entertain, but to educate and to transform you can be you can as a viewer you can be taken to a story in another culture in another country in another language and you can you can kind of maybe appreciate a different point of view that you've never experienced before and if we connect you know one person to one thing that they wouldn't otherwise have seen and they love it it's fun to be part of the industry that inspired me when I was a child, um, drove my teenage passion for acquiring information and led into my career kind of thing. So we were, we were definitely uh, began as fans and I am still a fan today and I still enter information into IMDb. <laughs> Wow, it's so great hearing about how IMDb came to exist. Now we are moving away from the digital space of the internet towards the natural world of plants. 
Remarkably, plants can send long-distance signals to each other. Dr. Tom Bennett from the School of Biology has been investigating how plants send those signals to survive. And he's here to tell us all about how the connected networks of roots and shoots below our feet shape how we live. Hello, Tom. How are you today? I'm all right, thank you. Hello, everyone. Good. Hello. I'm excited about this because this is one of the areas, as someone who did kind of the art side of stuff, that I look at and I go, what? What's, what's going on here? This is plants communicating with each other. So in a nutshell, how do plants communicate with each other? So I think we have to be careful, and this is, you know, classic scientist here, uh, <laughs> about using the word communicate because that implies that it's a very deliberate process. And it might well be, but we haven't quite proved that yet. What we can certainly say is that they detect each other and that they can do that in four main ways. They reflect light and they can detect the light reflected off each other and, and the way that that changes in spectral quality. They can detect each other through volatile chemicals that they release into the atmosphere, through chemicals that they release into the soil, through their root systems, and they can detect each other through touch. And how is it you've sort of worked out that plants can sense, they can detect, they can feel if something sort of brushes against them? What, what, what are the things you're doing to work these things out? A lot of what we use is genetics, because we have mutants that are unable to do some of these things. And so we can, for instance, in the case of communication through the root system, we have mutants that don't make the chemicals that are needed to do that. And we can see that actually they are unable to respond to their neighbours, that it's like they're, they're kind of blind to each other. So we look for examples where they can no longer do something and then we try and work out what that means for how they do it in the first place. So in terms of plants, is it just their next-door neighbours that they can communicate with or does it depend on the species, like how far that they can communicate or how, how exactly does that work? It depends on the kind of information that they're, that they're detecting. Mm. So that plants can detect their mutual effect on light over a distance of metres. So it's not just necessarily the next door neighbours, it can be over quite far distances. Volatile signals, because they're airborne, can be detected over, again, a range of metres. The signals in the soil, we think must be much, you must have to be much closer to detect each other because the kind of diffusion of the signals through the soil must be fairly limited. Mm. And the touch is obviously only when you're absolutely in intimate contact with your neighbour. It's fascinating. I mean, so they can detect each other. Why are they detecting each other? Why do they need to? And when they have detected each other, what do they do about it? Well, the, the main reason for detecting each other is that actually the single biggest threat to a plant's life is its neighbours. They're all competing for the same water and mineral nutrients and sunlight as each other. And so actually, although there are lots of things out there that want to eat the plants, the, the single biggest problem if you're a plant is your neighbours, particularly because you can't move away from them and you can't, generally speaking, kill them either. So you have to kind of live with them. They can adapt their growth, they can adapt their physiology to make the best of the environment that they're in. So anyone listening to this who's got neighbours that they don't like that they can move away for at least you're not a plant while you're stuck there exactly i i sometimes make the the analogy that it's like your housemate that you can't change <laughs> you know you're stuck with him for a year and you're just gonna have to deal with it i was gonna say i didn't realize there was such like a plant hunger games going on but that's terrifying yeah it sounds it <laughs> so how did you end up choosing to work on plants and why exactly well the the short answer is that i was bribed to do it okay um because back in the day plant science was not a particularly popular option amongst undergraduate students. And there is an organisation out there, the Gatsby Plant Science Network, that is sort of dedicated to trying to make sure that the plant scientists of the future exist. 
one of the ways they do this is by sort of essentially bribing undergraduate students to get interested in plants. Okay, uh, right. And that, that's very much what happened to me. <laughs> nice. And it worked, as you can see. You know, everyone listening to this has either been to Leeds Uni or they're thinking of going to, to Leeds Uni. And you went to Leeds Uni to, I did. to do your, <laughs> yeah. your degree. And then you came back again after your PhD to, to be working here now. So how's that been as a sort of full circle process? Interesting, I think is how I'd describe it. So I, I came back in 2016, 14 years after I graduated. So, you know, quite a long way down the road. And now it feels like home again. And some of the people that taught me were still still in my department. And so are now my colleagues instead of the, the my lecturers. And what's it like having been a student here at the university and now giving lectures? So what's it like being on the other side of the lecture theatre? Actually, it's really pleasing. I don't think I appreciated how much of a difficult job it is. Mm. And I think my first lecture that I gave, it was so overwhelming that I just had to go and lie down in my office for an hour afterwards. I was that kind of drained by it. Because, you know, you see this sea of blank faces in the lecture theatre and you've no idea whether they've understood anything you've mm. said. Now, I, I guess I'm more more used to that and it it's, it's very rewarding, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. And it, it does feel like, you know, I can empathise with them directly because I used to be that student in, mm. in you know, the Roger Stevens lecture theatres. And was there anything when you came back to Leeds that you were really excited to do again? Because obviously I'm a student here at the moment and I think if I was to come back in, you know, 10 years, 14 years time, whatever it was, there would be things that I'd really want to come back and like, I don't know, go to Old Bar or was there anything in particular that when you came back you were really excited to kind of get to experience again? Definitely Old Bar, that, that's, a, that's a very good yeah. shout. Um, <laughs> although it has changed quite a lot, far less dingy than it used to be. <laughs> And just, you know, generally, I, I love the campus. Mm. I love the kind of, you know, the diversity of the buildings and the architecture and the fact that it feels like this kind of little island of learning in the middle of the city centre. Yeah. yeah. Two more very quick questions for you okay. before we let you, you get back to it. Firstly, back onto the plants. Uh, in the world of plants, what is the one thing we should be looking at in the future, do you think? Crops should be able to yield something like 21 tonnes per hectare. And we currently get them to, to do about nine tonnes per hectare. That's a massive gap, and I think that's the single biggest thing that we could that we could really be trying to understand is how are you, with the resources that the plants already have, get them to do that, get them to make that much more effectively for free. I think that's that's one of the big challenges. And the final thing is, can you just confirm no bribery took place in order for you to be here today? This is totally of your free will. I, You're I, happy to I, do I, the podcast. No, just yeah, checking. Yeah, absolutely. I'm taking the envelope off the table. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank it's you. a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, move over Tiger King, because our next guest has been working with Big Cats since she co-founded Cheetah Conservation Botswana in 2002. Rebecca Klein graduated from Leeds in zoology in 1995, and she tells us all about studying wildlife conservation at Leeds, finding a home in Yorkshire, and working hard to save the lives of the planet's fastest land mammal. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Rebecca Klein. I started studying wildlife biology at Leeds um, because I, I really always wanted to be a wildlife conservationist. I was born in Portsmouth in the UK, and, uh, but my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot to different countries, um, sometimes in quite remote places. And uh, in some of those places, I had more sort of animals as friends than people and uh, just really grew up loving nature. And uh, my parents were, were very much into the environment and conserving water and uh, 
animal welfare and social issues and things like that. So they raised me with like a, you know, sort of strong sense of responsibility. And I was very concerned about what was happening in the world, particularly for endangered species, you know, those, those species that we'll lose tomorrow if we don't act today. Yeah, so we've discovered a lot about cheetahs over the years, and and some of the most more, most interesting things are actually how adaptable they are. Uh, you know, we have this uh, vision of cheetahs, you know, speed runners and they're speed hunters, and that's the key to their success. And while that is true, and you know, they are completely adapted to running fast, uh, they are actually uh, more adaptable than we give them credit for. So, in some of the farmland areas in the Kalahari where, that have been grazed for decades, uh, we get this effect called bush encroachment. And they're living very successfully in those areas. And they have adapted to sort of more ambush hunting, more like a leopard would. But, you know, the joy is knowing that the cheetahs are out there living wild. And uh, we've had, you know, a number of uh, big wins over the years. I mean, I suppose one in uh, 2006, which is quite a while ago now, but we were successful in uh, getting cheetahs included on the list of compensated species. So there is a a government compensation program where if a carnivore takes uh, your livestock, you can get compensated for it. But uh, cheetahs and African wild dogs weren't considered to be a threat to human life. You could protect your livestock against them. So they weren't listed in the compensated species. That was a that was a big win. And of course, uh, with the farmers themselves, you know, you can sometimes have some very challenging farmers who aren't interested at all in, in talking to conservationists, but just going to get in their way, etc., And uh, uh, we were able to demonstrate that actually if you do have, uh, say, a territorial male on your land, they will actually keep younger groups of cheetahs out of that territory. And then if you go ahead and remove, lethally remove that, uh, that territorial male, more cheetahs will even come in now to take that territory. So you're actually opening up an empty space. You're opening up a vacuum. So it was really useful to, you know, utilize scientific research so that the farmers could be informed about how they managed their land and their wildlife and their livestock. I chose Leeds because actually I really wanted to go to a city university because I'd I'd spent much of my growing up years in the bush (laughs) in remote places and I wanted to be somewhere happening where there was music and and I always loved the north of England as well. Uh, it's It's a bit wilder. Uh, I love the Yorkshire Dales and we used to go up all the time to Ilkley and all those areas around there. Um, yeah, so so Leeds was a great choice and wildlife biology was perfect for me and it was a, an ideal stepping stone for for my journey, for my conservation journey. If, like us, you were moved by Rebecca's work, please Google Cheetah Conservation Botswana. And finally, it's no surprise that Leeds has a rich and ancient history, but on display for the first time ever are two large pieces of inscribed sandstone found by the university in Wensleydale in the 1960s. These show North Yorkshire's turbulent and surprising past, and they'd been lying face down in a field for 1,600 years. What can these stones tell us about the first century? a time when Yorkshire came under the rule of the first African emperors of Rome. Tom Davy went to investigate. What do the Colosseum, the ruins of Pompeii and the Michael Sadler building have in common? Well, 
they all hold items of historical significance to ancient Rome. Two stone tablets from the early 3rd century have been put on display for the first time in the Michael Sadler building. The larger of the stones, weighing over 600 pounds, had to be installed by Crane and reveals previously unknown details about Roman Yorkshire, the first African emperors of Rome and the dynastic power plays of the Roman period. To explore these stories, gather students' reactions and discuss the stone's future, I attended the official unveiling event. Uh, so if you could just introduce yourself and what the evening tonight has all been about. My name's Penny Goodman. Um, I am a Roman historian here in Classics at Leeds. So this evening we have been showcasing two inscriptions which were found in the early 1960s by um, Brian Hartley and a team of archaeologists from Leeds. In between then and now, they have sat in storage um, in the basement of the chemistry building. And finally, we've now this evening been able to realise Brian Hartley's vision, get them on display in the Michael Sadler building, which is always what he intended, and just share this resource and this really important piece of historical evidence with uh, the people of the university and beyond. I also spoke to Dr Samuel Gartland, the leading impetus for bringing the stones back to a place where they were visible, about the process of getting them on display and his personal history with the stones. I think, I mean, I was a postgraduate here about 10 years ago and I knew about them in a general sense then, but knew also that they were pretty inaccessible. You know, I'd, I'd heard rumours of these stones down in the basement mm -hmm. um, and it was only when I came back here um, and literally was given the key went down into the basement, found the right room, opened the room and spent, you know, know an hour or two first getting to the stone then uncovering the, the one was under a big blanket on a crate, the big one, uh, the small one was in a, a beautiful old archaeological box um, and so, you know, opened the little one, thought this is wonderful, this is easy, the big one took the blanket off and could see almost nothing um, because the lighting is terrible. The yeah. stone was face down for 1,600 years. You know, it's, it's pretty badly worn in its, in its sort of basic state. And so I thought, you know, I, I could see why, why it, it had the potential to be a, a, real, a real superstar object, but I couldn't sort of make it happen straight away. Yeah. And so one of the advantages of the object history of these stones is that they've never been on public display, so they've never had any cleaning, they've never had any treatment, they've never been spruced up in a way that sometimes um, damages objects um, or removes information. Um, there's a team at Glasgow who um, I know quite well and have invited down to, um, to look at the stone who have, over the last few years, developed a series of quite specialist techniques um, which would have been unthinkable 10, 15 years ago, which are, are able to recapture um, traces of, of colour on, on the face of the stones. And that will hopefully, with this stone being relatively untreated, allow us to recapture the full vibrant colour, um, which we know was present on most ancient inscriptions, but is often very difficult to recapture. The stones had already become a talking point by the time they were unveiled, as I spoke to students about their opinions on the discovery. A lot of the classics we do, it's like set in like Greece or Rome, obviously. It's like quite cool to be like, this is from like not far from where you live. It's like you feel like you're in the midst of stuff being discovered. From ancient Rome to Bainbridge to the Michael Sadler building, these stones and their inscriptions expand our knowledge of our local area. The information held in these inscriptions was once thought lost. But with the work of the university's staff and students, its story will go on forever. And that's the end of the final episode of Forever Leads for 2022. 
it's been great hearing about what alumni have got up to and the exciting research happening here on campus. We'll be back in January for a very special bonus 2022 recap episode where we'll be giving you extra content from Leeds alumni and revisit some of our favourite bits from this year's run of Forever Leeds. Normal service will resume in the spring term when we'll be back every four weeks with more alumni news. But before we leave you... As the cost of living crisis starts to bite, your donations that help the brilliant people who study at Leeds matter even more. By supporting Leeds students through the alumni network, people from less advantaged backgrounds can have the same exceptional experiences at Leeds that we've all enjoyed. With your help, students who are the first in their family or area to go to university can be supported throughout their studies. They may have caring responsibilities or have been in care themselves, so when you donate, you really do transform the futures of thousands of people. Alumni donors support scholarships and help students afford the everyday essentials that are costing more than ever. Your generosity also gives them unimaginable support through the PLUS programme, where dedicated professionals provide students with the support they need to succeed. Do you want to help the next generation of students flourish? Make a donation today by visiting bit.ly slash students. That's bit.ly slash students. And that is it for the autumn term. So, Georgia, is it Christmassy in the student house yet? Are you going to wait till you get home for Christmas? Got some advent calendars, but no Christmas tree yet, unfortunately. What will you be doing over Christmas? Exams and assignments, uh, sadly. Hopefully get Christmas Day off, uh, but that might be it, I think. Definitely give yourself Christmas Day yeah. off. Yeah. You deserve that, at least. Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. Thank you for listening. And of course, Forever Leads will be back in the new year. Until then, we'll see you soon.